Hello and welcome to another episode of The Go Connection. I'm your host, Dr. Helen Ransom, and on this episode, we are sharing a remarkable speech from the November 2018 Jordan J. Cohen Humanism and Medicine Lecture from the Association of American Medical Colleges Annual Meeting. The Humanism and Medicine Lecture is an annual talk sponsored by the Gold Foundation. That year, the AAMC's guest speaker was Dr. George Tebow. Dr. George Tebow is a Gold Foundation trustee. He is the immediate past president of the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation. Previously, he served as the vice president of clinical affairs at Partners Healthcare System in Boston and served as the director of the academy at Harvard Medical School. Given our recent events, past events, and what we are hoping for the future, Dr. Tebow's lecture titled, Humanism in Medicine, What Does It Mean and Why Is It More Important Than Ever, remains very relevant for our times, which is why we had to share it with you. So what is humanism? And why is it relevant today? Webster defines humanism as any system or mode of thought or action in which human interests, values, and dignity predominate. Let me repeat that. In which human interests, values, and dignity predominate. I will come back to that. Humanism as a philosophical movement began in the Renaissance in emphasizing the centrality of humans and human experience. It was a reaction to the theism of medieval scholasticism, which placed God at the center of all things and emphasized supernatural rather than natural forces. This powerful revolutionary premise that human interests, values, and dignity are dominant was the driving force of the art, literature, and creativity of the Renaissance. It celebrated the understanding of the natural environment and of the human experience. It stressed the essential goodness and perfectibility of human beings and the importance of reason to solve human problems. The recent biography of Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson allows one to experience the creativity that was unleashed by this human-centered philosophy. Two centuries later, humanism became the intellectual underpinning for the Enlightenment. Philosophers John Locke, David Hume, and others used humanistic principles to emphasize human liberty human rights, and social justice as the elements of the social contract, which is the legitimate basis for government. Our Declaration of Independence is a product of the Enlightenment and is a humanistic treatise. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Enlightenment belief in the power of reason unleashed the burgeoning of science in the 18th and 19th century that has continued into the 21st century. Steven Pinker's recent book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress, documents with extensive data that the state of the human condition in the world is continuing to improve because of the continued application of the Enlightenment principles of reason, science, and humanism, which go hand in hand. In the 20th century, the principles of humanism underlie the development of the liberal democracies, which became the ascendant political order of the Western world, defeating the rival philosophies of fascism and communism. Yuval Noah Harari, author of Sapiens, in his recent book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, cautions us that we cannot take that ascendancy for granted. And this warning will be relevant to some of my comments that follow. Now, why am I taking you on this historical journey? I want to make the point that humanism has a long history as a philosophical, cultural, and political idea. Once again, it emphasizes reason and scientific inquiry to lead to human fulfillment. It is anchored in the natural world and in human experiences. And it strives to understand and improve that world in the service of human interests, value, and dignity. Understanding this historical context and the essential elements of humanism is critical to our understanding of the current state of humanism, not only vis-a-vis -vis medicine, but vis-a-vis -vis our larger society. So given this background, what does humanism and medicine mean? And what are the implications of making a commitment to humanism and medicine? Now, medicine has always been regarded as a humanistic enterprise, even before this movement for humanism began. The ethical principles of the Hippocratic Oath, dating to the 5th century BC, are humanistic, even though the oath begins with a prayer to multiple Greek gods. Uh, but they call for putting patients' interests first. The great medieval physicians, Avicenna and Maimonides, were steeped in the humanities. And from the Renaissance on, there has been the ideal of the physician who was learned in the humanities as well as in the sciences. Now, the explicit attempt to renew this link of humanism with medicine is a phenomenon of the latter decades of the 20th century. And it was motivated by the desire to humanize medicine in the face of dehumanizing forces that were taking medicine away from its roots. These forces included 
the corporatization of the practice of medicine, the increasing role of business and finance in medicine, the fragmentation of patient experiences, the reduced time for clinical encounters, the increased reliance on technology as a substitute for human interaction, a de-emphasis on the humanities and education, and we could go on and on. In all of these dehumanizing forces, we're leading to a general decline in both patient and professional satisfaction. The need to create programs and incentives to counter these dehumanizing forces led Arnold and Sandra to create the Gold Foundation 30 years ago, a brilliant and prescient move. And if it had not been created then, we would need to create it now. But in spite of the Gold Foundation, positive impact on the education and attitude of health professionals, the dehumanizing forces affecting our professions are growing stronger. Now what has the Gold Foundation done? And there isn't time here to list it all, but I want to just give a sense of what the strategy was that was so effective. They created humanizing communities and rituals that connect health professionals with their roots and their values to be compassionate, caring, and collaborative clinicians. They've created rewards and recognition for these humanistic behaviors. They've stimulated reflective writing and research on humanistic topics. And the medical education world has, in fact, been humanized by these initiatives. But there's much more to be done. We must go, we must penetrate more broadly, go more deeply, and reach in to the other health professions. And all of this is the work of the Gold Foundation going forward. And I'm excited to be a part of that journey. Now, this work to humanize medicine does follow the principles of humanism, even if we didn't always articulate that. Putting patients, a human being first, is at the center of the focus of humanism. Promoting better understanding of the human experiences of both patients and clinicians. Deriving professional goals and actions from the real needs of patients. Applying reason to better solve the problems of healthcare and using science to devise ways to better help patients maintain health. And I want to emphasize the point again. Humanism has never been anti-science. It is allied with science. Now, consistent with these humanistic principles, we strive to make the health professions the model for humanism in our society. And this is absolutely essential work that is more important than ever. But what I want to tell you now is that is not enough. We as a profession, as professionals, and as members of our society have even a larger challenge that goes well beyond this mandate, this continuing mandate to humanize medicine. It is not just medicine that is threatened by being dehumanized. Our society at large is turning against the principles of humanism that have been its underpinning since its founding. Political events here and abroad threaten the principles of humanism and of democratic liberalism that has been the predominant form of government of the Western world, regardless of which political party is in power. The election of Donald Trump was both a symptom of and an accelerant 
to this anti-humanism trend in the United States. This trend towards more autocratic and nationalistic philosophies, which are not in line with the principles of humanism, has been documented in the rise of autocratic leaders in Russia, Turkey, Hungary, Poland, and now Brazil, in the emergence of strong nationalistic parties in many Western European countries. And we should be clear about it. This trend antedated our 2016 elections. Now, there clearly are differences across these various examples, but there is much commonality in the anti-humanistic rhetoric and behaviors and in resulting policies that are not consistent with humanistic principles. Now, in applying a humanistic lens to these political issues, I do not want to suggest that they're not legitimate areas for policy debate and disagreement. Nor do I have a Manichaean view of the world that all of it must be divided into the humanists and the anti-humanists. But I will assert that we cannot legitimately, legitimately address the issue of humanism in medicine today without exploring the state of humanism in our larger society. So what are some of the anti-humanistic behaviors that are becoming more prevalent today and are legitimized by some leaders. Prejudice and bias against individual groups based on race, ethnicity, and religion is anti-humanistic because it denies the value of each human being. Threats to restrict freedom of speech and other individual liberties are anti-humanistic because they deny individual rights that are the underpinning of humanism. An absence of truthfulness is anti-humanistic because humanism is based on rational thought and speech. The denial of scientific facts is anti-humanistic because humanism celebrates science to improve the human condition. Bullying and insulting behaviors are anti-humanistic because they demean the value of each individual and threaten the ideal of the full development of each human. As leaders and professionals in our society and as defenders of humanism, we must call out these behaviors when we see them in our leaders, in our social interactions, and even in our own profession. Sadly, these behaviors are now linked to policies which are anti-humanistic, which are a direct threat to our patients and to our values. As examples, Rolling back the expanded access to care of the Affordable Care Act is anti-humanistic and a denial of equal rights. Human interests, values, and dignity do not predominate. Denial of climate change is anti-humanistic because it denies scientific fact with direct neg negative consequence for optimal human health development now and in the future. Human interests, values, and dignity do not predominate. Separation of children from their families is anti-humanistic. It's a denial of a basic human need, a denial of well-established science. Human interests, values, and dignity do not predominate. Failure to enact reasonable gun safety legislation is anti-humanistic because it leads to preventable human harm. Human interests, Values and dignity do not predominate. 
Denial of the safety and efficacy of vaccines is anti-humanistic because it is anti-science and leads to human harm and suffering. Human interests, values, and dignity do not predominate. Denial of science in general is anti-humanistic and undermines the public confidence in our institutions in their ability to do good on their behalf. Human interests, values, and dignity do not predominate. Unreasonable restrictions on immigration are anti-humanistic because they deny the value of all humans and deny society the benefit of diversity, talent, and innovation. Human interests, values, and dignity do not predominate. Others could add to this list of anti-humanistic policies that directly threaten our patients and our values. If we are to have humanism in medicine, we must play a role in addressing, mitigating, and reversing these policies, which threaten to dehumanize our society and run counter to our greater than 200-year tradition of humanistic values. This, of course, is not the first time in our country's history when humanistic values have been threatened. Slavery, Civil War, Reconstruction, the Ku Klux Klan, the Know Nothing Party, McCarthyism, the Vietnam War, challenged our commitment to humanism. John Meacham, in his recent book, The Soul of America, speaks to these unsettling moments in our history and how the people of the nation and its leaders responded to them by ultimately reaffirming our values. How are we going to respond to the current threat? More than two decades ago, we began the discussion in the health professions that our responsibility is not only to our patients, but also to improve the systems in which we work, to make care more reliable, accessible, equitable, and affordable for all the humans we serve. This humanistic professional value was beautifully articulated by Don Berwick, Paul Batalden, and others. And while this task is by no means done, we must now add another task, and that is to make our society at large more humanistic. We will do this by the example of how we conduct ourselves as compassionate professionals in our individual patient encounters. We will do this by continuing to reform our systems of care to make them more humanistic. But we must also bear witness to the threats to humanism that are all around us and that are having a negative impact on the lives of our patients and the values of the society in which we function as professionals. We cannot achieve our goals for humanism and medicine within an anti-humanistic society. Now you may say that's too much to expect of us. We are already overburdened, sometimes overwhelmed, with our professional tasks. And it is certainly true that we cannot take on every issue or devote our all our time and energy to a national political campaign to restore humanism. But I do believe by, that by speaking to these issues in the appropriate forum, we will reaffirm our professional identities, avoid victimization, avoid complicity by our silence. Pres President Kennedy once said that the hottest place in hell are reserved for those that in times of moral crisis maintain their neutrality. 
Now we will be aided by creating communities of like-minded health professionals, finding partners in other societal sectors. And such a renewed sense of purpose and defense of humanism can be an antidote to professional ennui and disillusionment. And there's a very important role for educators in providing the substrate and tools for this expanded vision of humanism in medicine and in the health professions. We must see that our educational processes afford more opportunities to express and develop humanism. These opportunities include caring for underserved populations in the U.S. and abroad, more focus on the social determinants of health, and a strengthening of the social contract between our academic medical centers and the society we serve. I commend the Beyond Flexner Alliance for its important work in this area. We also must support the study of the humanities to better understand the human condition and the human experience. And many such initiatives are now in place across the country, and I applaud the AAMC for its recent initiative to codify and expand these. And we must also create opportunities for the discussion of policy, philosophy, and advocacy so that our graduates are equipped to be fully engaged as humanistic citizens. And of course, we must continue to work hard to assure that all of our own learning environments contain examples of humanistic behavior and pay more attention to the very environments in which we learn and work. Let me end with a story. There was a general practitioner in a small rural town. He cared for the residents of the town and the farms and hamlets of the surrounding 10 to 15 miles. He made house calls, delivered babies, performed minor surgery, dispensed medicine, and tended to the physical and emotional and social needs of his patients. His office was in his home. No patient was turned away. Patients were charged on a sliding scale and some paid with produce or performing house repairs. In this small town, he was also the public health officer, the school doctor, and served as chairman of the school board. Unfortunately, he died young of an MI at the age of 49. His patients lined the streets for two days to say goodbye and thank you as, as he was laid out in his home. This GP was my father. The town was Chenango, New York. The year of his death was 1962. I had just finished my freshman year in college studying philosophy. Chittenango was where I first learned about humanism and medicine, and I've carried it with me throughout my whole career. Each of us has our own touchstone for humanism, an experience, a role model, an inspirational writing. It is time for each of us to draw on that touchstone and make it more real in our daily life. Let it inform every encounter with a patient. Let it inform our work within the health system to make them more humanistic. And let us use our expertise and professional standing to speak out on issues that are important to our values and to our patients. Let us be more politically active, supporting candidates who reflect our humanistic values. We can make a difference. We can help to have our society more aligned with the historic principles of humanism that have been part of medicine since its root. We must be intentional in doing this, and we must make the case on principles, not on personality. 
and I believe the principles of humanism can be a guiding torch for that. It will be hard to have humanism in medicine if there is no humanism in the world around us. Thank you very much. Dr. Tebow's speech is a timely reminder of what humanism means, not only for ourselves, but for others, and how our actions impact each other. We are all in this together, trying to figure this out as best we can, and we need reminders for what's at stake. Recent events, too many to name, too frustrating to go into again, we all know what they are. We are all impacted by their developments, by their headlines, by the rage. But this speech serves as an anchor for us, or what I hope to be an anchor for us, and that the basic understanding of humanism will help us move forward through and maybe even on the other side of this. Thank you for joining us. Subscribe, share, to help us spread the word. And until next time, take care.